Turn to John chapter 12, please. My burden this morning in preparing for this message and next week's message, it's kind of a two-part message, a series on Satan. My burden is that we will have, as a result of this Sunday and next, is that we'll have a much bigger view of God and a much smaller view of Satan. Really, it'll be a biblical view. The world's message kind of turns that the other way around, where Satan is this scary creature we make scary movies about, and then God is this goober. If he's represented in movies, he's represented as kind of this, this comical, old, forgetful old man. So it's my burden this morning to um, actually really to develop in us a greater view of sovereignty without even defining that word. That may sound like a big word or a word you really haven't encountered before, one that you really aren't able to define. That's okay because we're going to give contours to sovereignty in exposing this huge God and this dependent, and I mean dependent, Satan. He's not a free agent. He's dependent, and he's bound, and he's restricted, and he's only able to do certain things. That's where we're going to go this morning. I want to begin with prayer and um, pray that God will will just call us um, to a deeper appreciation for his power and his sovereignty and his ability and his mystery and um, that we can have a biblical view of Satan. Let's pray. Lord, I recognize in these next few minutes that we're going to take the world's thoughts and the world's message and we're going to turn it on its ear. Lord, I'm excited about the fact that the Word is going to be doing that, not uh, opinion, not just argument, but that the Word, this living uh, truth, exposes Satan for who he really is and exposes you for your power and your majesty and your glory and your omnipotence and your omniscience. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that uh, this will change us and change our view of maybe how we consider and view calamity, our loss, our difficulty, and that we in all things can turn Godward, and that we can look for your glory in all things, and that we can truly count it all joy in those times. Lord, we recognize that's got to be a divine work, and it's not something that man can muster, and it's not something that we can accomplish on our own. we ask you for it, we beg you for it, and we give you the opportunity and the, the uh, beg you for that work in us. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for Johnny Henderson and uh, Commerce First Baptist. Lord, I want to pray for his uh, marriage. Lord, I pray that it is blessed. I pray that he is enjoying his wife and that she is enjoying her husband. I pray that at the center of their marriage is a sweet savoring of Christ and um, a deep appreciation for the gospel that grows every day and I pray that that gushes over onto the marriage and onto children or grandchildren or whoever else may be involved in their family in that immediate ministry. I pray in a secondary ministry that you will fill Johnny so overflowing with uh, worship and wonder that it spills over onto a people and that the people in commerce of First Baptist that they will truly be captivated with Christ. Lord, I pray that you'll guard them from ever doing church, but they will truly be God's people. They will truly be walking in worship and wonder, and they will truly be savoring your son. Lord, I pray the same for this church and this people, that you'll guard us from ever getting our church on and getting our check in the block, but that we'll be driven by worship and wonder of an unbelievable son and a just surprise gospel. Lord, I pray that their worship and their wonder will couple with ours and that we can truly be partners in ministry. I pray that that also will be coupled with uh, Commerce Community Church. I just pray that the believers in this community and Commerce Community can truly serve together and truly enjoy Christ together out loud so that people that don't know Christ don't see a bunch of churches in competition with each other, but they see a bunch of believers that are so captivated with Christ that they're drawn to that, and that you'll use that as an instrument for your glory. Lord, we beg for that. We don't just 
put a check in the block in asking that. We truly beg for that in this community. We beg for the people of God to be worshiping out loud and to be salty and bright and aromatic. We pray that that will be driven by the preaching and exposition of the Word and the work of the Holy Spirit through that. Lord, we give you this time together this morning for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> John 12, verses 31 and 32. I've been studying for the last few months and uh, preparing to preach this morning. Last week we had a message on the first part of chapter 12, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Last week we considered that the now has to do with the hour. Christ is speaking of his hour where he's about to go to the cross. He's in his final days before he submits to wood and nails and spit and beatings and accusations and insults and injustice. That's the hour. That's where the hour really reaches its high point. The hour ends with his resurrection, but he's speaking here of his hour. He says, now in this hour is the judgment of this world. Last week we considered that that's where the light is flipped on, and that's where the world scurries and hides from the light. But then the second part of that verse says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now in this hour, through this cross and through this work, will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when, I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, when I submit to nails and wood and spit and beatings and accusations, I will draw all people to myself. What I want to consider this morning is really just the first part of the second half of verse 31. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. I want to consider what it means that he is or was the ruler. I introduced a couple of questions last week that I want to explore this morning. I want to ask and answer the question, if he has influence in this world, how much does he have? The second question is, is Satan to be feared? Should we be afraid of him? So that's where we're going to go this morning. And really, again, the ultimate question is, what does it mean that he is or that he was the ruler of this world? You're going to need your Bibles this morning. If you don't, If you don't bring a Bible, you don't have a Bible, that blue one in the seat back in front of you is now yours. And you can mark it up. You can put your name in the front of that thing. You can own it. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. I'll give you page numbers if I feel like I'm beating you there. Page 965 of your pew Bible or your English Standard Version. Five passages that I want to look at in the next few minutes that help us appreciate the gravity or the extent of the rule of this Satan. We're going to ask, and first of all, we're going to answer the question, is there a rule currently? Let's start with 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. I love this development of passages because I think you're going to see the gravity of the influence that Satan has in this world. We've got to build that in before we go through the rest of the message. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He's writing about the, the situation of those who are not believing. In verse 3, just the verse before, he says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. And then he says, In their case, meaning in unbelievers' case, the God of this world, he's speaking of Satan there, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So if we're asking that question first off, does he rule? How much rule does he have? We first of all know from 2 Corinthians 4.4 that he blinds the minds of the unbeliever. If you've got a friend or a family member or a workmate that's not believing on Christ, you can give Satan credit. We'll talk in a little bit about how much credit, but you can give him, from this passage we know, we can give him some credit. That he's blinding their minds so that they don't see the gospel. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. That's on page 976. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 is really kind of the gospel in a nutshell. It's one of my favorite sections of scripture in the Bible. But the first part of this section, the first three verses, is really Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus and he's explaining the dire situation before Christ and apart from Christ. 
Listen to what he says. He says, and you, Ephesians, you could insert yourself in there. Insert your family name, your surname. Or insert Crosspoint Fellowship members. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following, listen, the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. And Paul writes, he says, Among whom we, speaking of the Jews, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's the first part of the gospel. He's explaining our dire situation, and right in the middle of that dire situation, he says, you are walking according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. So, so far, just from two passages, we've got a pretty dire situation if we're going to consider the influence that Satan has. We know right off the bat that he's blinding the minds of the unbelieving. Secondly, we know that he is the prince of the power of the air. And we know that he is at work in the sons of disobedience and those who are not believing. Look over a few pages to Ephesians chapter 6. Beginning in verse 10 is a passage of Scripture where Paul is equipping the Ephesians or he's calling to attention the equipment that they have to defend themselves against Satan. And he's talking about the full armor of God. And he's charging them to put this on. Listen to what he says. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be, you believers, you insert your family name, insert Crosspoint Fellowship membership, insert believers in this community, that you believers may be able to stand against what? Against the schemes of the devil. It's important enough for Paul to include in this letter to the church at Ephesus that the devil has schemes and to point out the gear and the equipment that they have to defend themselves. But he expounds a little bit on what those schemes are. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle, believers, you and me, we wrestle against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. (laughs) So if we're asking the question, how much influence does Satan have in this world? Does he have influence? We know that he's blinded the minds of the unbelieving. We know he's the prince of the power of the air, that he's at work in the sons of disobedience. And we know that he's got a bunch of schemes. And those schemes involve rulers, powers, forces of darkness, and spiritual forces of evil and wickedness. He's got an army. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. 1 Peter is just a couple of books in front of Revelation. You can turn to page 1016. Page 1016 of your pew Bible or your ESV. Peter is writing to believers and he, he charges them and he's charging, God is charging you and me. He says, be sober-minded. The Christian journey of faith is no joke. I know we kind of have a light-hearted bulletin cover and, you know, a funny name, punked by the cross. <laughs> You'll understand why we did that next week. That's not to be flippant with this issue. Peter charges them, he says, be sober minded be watchful and he says your adversary the devil he even qualifies who the adversary is satan he says he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour he loves eating people so when we ask how much influence or does he have influence in this world, we know that he's blinded the minds of the unbelieving. We know that he's the prince of the power of the air, that he's at work in the sons of disobedience. We know that he has schemes that involve rulers, authorities, forces of darkness, spiritual forces and evil and wickedness. And that he's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's busy. And he loves eating people. Turn to 1 John chapter 5, just a couple of pages over. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, page 1024. This is probably the most frightening of the combination of passages I want to share with you first. I want you to hear the gravity of this verse I'm about to share with you. 
It just seems like it is hopeless being in this world. Like we have no hope. Listen to this passage. The first part of it sounds good. First John chapter 5, verse 19. You can, man, you can cheer. We know that we are from God. But then the second part, oh, let's listen. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Golly, if we ask the question, how much influence does Satan have? We've got to consider these passages that he's blinded the minds of the unbelieving. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's at work in the sons of disobedience. That he has schemes that involve rulers, authorities, forces of darkness, spiritual forces at work that are evil and wicked. And we know that he prowls around like a roaring lion. And we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And you've got to appreciate that this is written by John. The same John that wrote John 12, 31. That is quoting Christ as saying, Now, in this hour, the ruler of this world is cast out. I think that answers our question if he still has influence in this world. We're next week going to consider what it means that he was cast out. What happened to Satan in the cross. But right now from these passages that were written after Christ said that, we've got to appreciate that Satan still has tremendous influence in this world. Now, we've got to consider next though, the nature of that influence. If all we were left with were those passages, man, we would just be doomed. We'd be bumming. We'd be walking around moping. Man, I'm just toast. There's no way I can stand. I'm, I'm blind meat. And he's ready to eat my lunch. But we've got to consider the nature of that influence. Satan has had and he continues to have tremendous influence in this world. But you've got to appreciate that all the while, God is on his throne. While Satan has tremendous influence in the world, God is on his throne. Turn to 1 Chronicles. That's in the Old Testament. 1 Chronicles. Let's see if I can give you a page number here in a minute. Chapter 21, page 350. I want you to see this. Even if you're not turning with me this morning... Grab a Bible and turn with me to see these couple of passages. You've got to see this passage and the one I'm about to read because to, it's going to begin to help you reconcile these truths that we're piecing together. Okay? First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1. Before I read it, though, let me give you a little, little context. David, the king of Israel, the second king of Israel, He's a man after God's own heart. We know that from the Word. We also know that David fell. He fell with Bathsheba. He had Uriah the Hittite murdered. But that wasn't the only thing that David did wrong. This is another thing that David did wrong. David took a census of the people. He counted heads. Now, earlier in the Old Testament, the people of God were charged with counting heads. But in this case, for some reason, there's some some other information we're not privy to where God communicated to David, don't you do that. We can assume that because later on he's guilty because, of he, because he did that. He took something into his own hands. Either he didn't trust the Lord or he felt like he had to count his army to see how strong are we. Whatever the case, he fell when he did this. But I want you to appreciate who the agents are in what I'm about to read. David takes a census, but I want you to appreciate what influences him to take a census. Look at this in chapter 21, verse 1. Then Satan stood against Israel... And Satan, carry that subject, incited David to number Israel. So does Satan have influence in this world? Well, he has some influence against a man after God's own heart right here. Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab, that was the commander of his army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. I want to count heads. I want to see how extensive my army is. And Joab recognizes it's not a good idea. He recognizes that it would be an offense to God and they would be guilty. He says, may the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my Lord, the king, all of them my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? Joab recognizes it's a bad idea. 
But the king's word prevailed against Joab, and Joab went off and got the census. Okay, so appreciate who the agents are there. David, a man after God's own heart, sins by taking a census. And who incited him? Satan incited him. Now, turn to a parallel passage in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel is a few, few books before that. I'll give you a page number here in a moment. 2 Samuel chapter 24, page 277 of your pew Bible or your ESV. Second Samuel and First Chronicles kind of work together right here. I need to give you a little context because I know a lot of us haven't spent very much time in this Old Testament. It's kind of dusty and, and has spider webs and stuff. These are kind of like the Gospels. They're two different accounts of the same event. So with these passages will help amplify and help us understand all the dynamics involved. Okay, so let's look here in Second Samuel about the same event. Verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Okay, already we have a little difference there. We know before Satan was against Israel, but now it says the anger of the Lord is kindled against Israel right here. And then it says, and he carried the subject, the Lord incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, Joab recognizes a bad idea. He says, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. And Joab went on off and got the census. Do you see the similarities there? It's the same story. Joab even responds the same way. Except the difference is here it's, it, it, it is ascribed. The agent, the moving agent is God. In the other case is Satan. In the, this case it's God. So which is it? Is it one or the other? It's both and. That's how you've got to begin to reconcile how Satan has influence and rule in this world is that he does it while God is on his throne. Satan doesn't incite or influence anyone but by God's involvement. In the Hebrew mind, the way they viewed this, the way they viewed the way God worked and how in calamity and trouble and sin even, is that if God permits it, then God commits it. Their mind was that if God permits it, God commits it, yet remains holy and yet remains benevolent and yet does not author sin. How does that work? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't think they know. The Bible's not real clear on how that all works, but we've got to give God credit. God was on His throne while David sinned. He didn't author it, but yet in some way He's involved. He incited David to take the census, and His agent in that was Satan. We've got to begin to reconcile these things and appreciate how these things work because they will change the way you view God and they'll change the way you view Satan. Turn to Job chapter 1. If we're going to consider the relationship between God and Satan and us and tragedy and blessing and all those sort of things, Job is a great place to go. (laughs) The first couple of chapters of Job, you see an interaction between God and the sons of God. Really, he's talking about his angelic creatures, how they interact, and then how his creature, like Job, interacts and receives what happens. So let's turn to Job chapter 1 on page 417, beginning in verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God... Now, what I want you to see in these next couple minutes, in these next couple passages, is that Satan only works by permission. If you get anything this morning, I want you to get that. Satan only works by permission. He's not a free agent out there on his own doing his own thing. He only works by permission. Listen, beginning in verse 6 of Job chapter 1. 
Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Sons of God is kind of shorthand for the angelic creatures that God has created. And Satan came among them. And the Lord says to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, in keeping with 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, where he's prowling around like a roaring lion. He says, I've been going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Really, I'm just looking for somebody to eat. And the Lord said to Satan, hmm, if you're hungry, have you considered my servant Job? says that there is none like him on the earth. He's blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But I tell you what, God, you stretch out your hand and you touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, See who the agent is here. See who's really in control. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, Satan, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So Satan goes out from that point and he does what God allowed him to do. And he wipes out Job's whole family except for his delightful, loving, encouraging wife. He wipes out his entire family, his children. His children are sitting having a big old banquet together, enjoying each other's company. And God lets Satan take Job's children. Job, a faithful man, he wasn't off limits. In fact, he's a target. And notice who pointed him out. God said, hey, Satan... Have you noticed Job? See, God is involved. God is all over it. God is ultimately responsible. Satan does what God allowed him to do. He takes his family, he takes his servants, he he kills all his, his, his herds. And all he left him was his health and his loving wife. So let's see what happens next. Chapter 2, verse 1. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Same scenario so far. Satan answered the Lord, I, you know, like a lion, looking for somebody to devour. I've been going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him. Who's against Job? Ultimately, God is against Job in this. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But you stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. God gives Satan permission to do whatever he can do, whatever he wants to do to Job, except he can't take his life, ultimately. So, Satan, given permission, takes Job's health. He's covered with boils. (laughs) I've never had a boil, but I can imagine that they're really bad. When you hear about somebody having a boil, man, they're hospitalized. Or at least they're laid up and they're not moving around. It's being treated all the time. Imagine having those from the, the, the sole of your feet to the top of your head. And that the only way you can get relief is that you take shards of pottery and you scrape them. Oh, oh, that feels better. You know that's got to hurt. But who gave permission to do it? God gave permission. He still hadn't taken his loving wife. She's still there on the scene like a boil herself. And he's scraping himself to relieve the pain. God allowed every bit of this. 
But notice, while he did it, he set limits. He set boundaries. Only go so far. Only go so far. In this case, in the first case, don't put your hand against Job. And in the second case, okay, you can put your hand against him, but don't take his life. Ultimately, who's sovereign? Who's on his throne? The Lord points out Job. He calls him to attention. Hey, Satan prowling around like a roaring lion. Consider my boy Job. Gobble him up for my glory. Gobble him up because there's going to be a book. And this book is going to be called Job. It's going to be titled, after this guy I'm going to let you gobble up. And it's going to be a glory book. And it's going to teach and train the believers over the ages to endure suffering, to endure pain, to endure heartache, and not only to endure it, but to embrace a sovereign God who sits on his throne at every point. In fact, Satan, gobble him up. Have your way with him because he's an instrument of glory. Turn to Revelation chapter 6. It's the last book of the Bible. I, I won't have to give you a page number, hopefully. Revelation chapter 6. As you're turning there, I'll share with you, on Wednesday nights, for a couple of years at Crosspoint, we worked through the book of Revelation. Man, it's a book I dreaded for so long. It was probably the least read book in my Bible. And I'm amazed at what God did, from my understanding of belief, but for this people also, that He created a more robust understanding of what it means to believe. The Revelation picture of believing is just that. It has a big fat ING. And it's overcoming and it's persevering to the end. It's not only a trip down an aisle and a short dip in a cool pool and occasional attendance at church. It's like a desperate people. (laughs) I'm thankful for this book of Revelation, but I'll tell you something else this book of Revelation did. It's made for a more robust understanding of God's sovereignty. Here, the passage I'm about to read in chapter 6, I'm about to show you a series of passages that reveal what are called divine passives. Now, normal people would just tune out when I say that because you're like, ah, well, whatever. But you're not normal. I don't want you to be normal. I want you to tune into this. Divine passives means it's a verb where something happens, but you don't know who the author or the agent is of that action. It would be like a, a passive sort of thing. would be like, yeah, somebody... Or, I was handed a Bible. You don't know who handed me that Bible. In the book of Revelation, there's a series of those sort of things, those verbs where the author of those actions, those author of those events is God. And they're called divine passives. And they're embedded right in the middle of what's called the tribulation. Most of us have read enough books or thought about it or heard enough to know what the tribulation is. I believe, from my study of Revelation, it's a seven-year period where this world will see the worst brutality that it's ever experienced. It will be mayhem, be havoc, pain, suffering like we've never imagined before. A seven-year period of seals, bowls, or trumpets, and bowls of escalating judgment. And what I want you to appreciate here in the next few minutes is those instruments of judgment are evil and wicked. They're pale riders on horses. They're red riders on horses. They're beasts and such. And that they move and they do God's bidding by permission. Look, let me show you. Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb, that's speaking of Christ, opened one of the seven seals. This is kind of the beginnings of the, uh, the tribulation here. Opened one of the seven seals, and I heard the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. Okay, it's white. It doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> Later on, Christ comes back on a white war horse. This white horse, don't, don't associate this with good. These are the hounds of hell you're about to meet. A rider on a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. He didn't take that crown by himself. He didn't own it. It was given 
to him. That's a divine passive where God is the agent. He's the giver. He gave that rider on a white horse a crown, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Look at verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, a bright red horse. And its rider, listen, was permitted. That's a divine passive. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. God is not all about peace, love, and kumbaya. Judgment is coming, folks. God is the ultimate judge, and this is a picture of that. He says, out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. That's another one. He was given. And the divine agent there is the Lord of lords and King of kings. He gave him a sword. Let's look at another one. Look on at um, Revelation chapter 6, verse 8. Beginning verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they, Death and Hades, were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Who's the agent there? God is the ultimate agent. He gives permission to these hounds of hell. Chapter 13, actually chapter 7, verse 2, there's another one. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea. They don't own that power themselves. It's got to be given to them. Chapter 13. Verse 5, this is one you'll recognize, and the beast. How many movies have you seen about the beast? Omen, Omen, Damien, and ooh, how scary. Listen to this about the beast, the Antichrist. And the beast was given. (laughs) There's a divine passage. He was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed. There it is again. The beast doesn't own anything. He only moves by permission. The beast was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in the heavens. Also, listen, it was allowed. There's another one. To make war. Look at who's going to get the receiving end of war from the beast It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Sounds kind of like Job. Satan, you're given permission to eat Job for my glory. Satan, you're given permission to eat the saints and to conquer them. And all authority, there it is again, was given the beast over every tribe and people and language and nation. And it goes on. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. That is only by permission. All this mayhem, all this destruction, all this havoc of the plagues, or the, they're like the plagues of the tribulation, all this havoc is by permission only. And God is on His throne. Turn to Zechariah. Zechariah is one of the last books of the Old Testament. It's not quite the last. It's next to last. Page 794. As you're turning there, I want to tell you, share a story with you. Evan began the journey of faith, at least as far as we can tell, a couple years ago. That's my daughter, our eldest. She was asking a lot of questions about what it meant to believe on Christ and what it meant to follow him. And, and she asked a question that was so good. I was sharing with her from the very beginning, the garden, where sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. And she asked a good question. She said, well, you know, because all the while I'm presenting this picture of a sovereign, powerful, all-knowing, all-powerful God. She asked this question. She said, well, if God is all-powerful, 
Why did he let Satan, the serpent, into the garden? Studying Genesis on Wednesday nights has shown us that not only did he let him in, he created him. But it's a good question, isn't it? If God is sovereign and God is all-powerful, why let Satan into the garden? If he's sovereign, why does he allow this wicked, and I'm using quotation marks, ruler, lowercase r, tiny little r, ruler, to, another quote again, rule in what is ultimately his domain, in his realm. Why does he let Satan do this? And here's why, the reason. It's for his own glory. Here's a picture of it in Zechariah. The often read, often studied book, Zechariah. I'm sure that most of you have read this passage before. Actually, I'm being facetious, but this passage is the gospel. Hear this passage. It's going to rock your world. It's so, it's so wonderful finding the gospel in the Old Testament. The, the, the Old Testament is a tutor that leads us to Christ, but when you see the gospel encapsulated, you see what is a type of what we are neck deep in, then you're like, oh, that's beautiful. You're about to see one of these. Listen. The context for Zechariah is during the Babylonian exile. And actually the temple is being rebuilt. Zechariah is having these visions of the temple and the wall being rebuilt. And he's having a vision right here of the high priest at that time who was Joshua. He has a funny name that I looked up somewhere, the rest of his name. But it's not the same Joshua of the guy that led Israel into the promised land. This is Joshua the high priest about... Uh, I don't know how many years later, a thousand years later, something like that after the Exodus. And Joshua was the priest while the, the altar was rebuilt and the temple was rebuilt. And Zechariah's having a vision of Joshua. Listen to what it, how it unfolds. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And look who's there with him. Look who's standing there with him. And Satan standing at his right hand to do what? To accuse him. Satan's standing there looking at Joshua in front of the angel of the Lord. There's also the picture that God is there. This is a heavenly court. And as Satan is doing what? He's accusing. Guilty. Joshua, the high priest of the people that have thumbed their nose at you. The high priest of the people that deserve the Babylonian exile. The high priest of the people that are guilty. He's casting accusations at Joshua. And you know what? His accusations are right. Joshua's guilty. He's a leader of the people, and he's guilty, guilty as the rest of them. Listen how it unfolds. Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. And here's what the Lord says to Satan. Here's the gospel. The Lord says to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Yeah, they may be guilty, but I've chosen them. And look what he's about to do. Is not this a brand? Isn't Joshua, a brand means a burning stick. Isn't this a brand that I'm reaching in and I'm plucking from the fire? Rebuke you, Satan. Yes, he's guilty, but my grace and my sovereignty, his big long arm that reaches into the fire and grabs that ember called Joshua is a picture of him reaching in and grabbing Israel. It's a picture of him reaching in and grabbing you. And the long arm is the cross. In the empty tomb, in the finished work of Christ, he reaches in and he grabs Joshua, the brand plucked from the fire. And look what it says. Now Joshua, standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, because he's guilty, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Joshua, you brand plucked from the fire, you burning stick that really deserved to burn up with the rest of the fire, I've plucked you from the fire and I've taken your iniquity away from you. I have removed your sin. I'm removing your filthy garments and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head too. We're not going to leave just be satisfied with clean garments. Let's put a clean turban on his melon. We're going to fancy him up despite the fact that he is guilty. So they put a clean turban on his head and they clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Folks, that's the gospel right there. 
And who's right up all up in the middle of it? Satan going guilty, guilty, accusing, deceiving, lying, saying he's guilty, God. He's not like you. He sinned. He shouldn't be here in this court. He doesn't deserve to be plucked from the fire. He's guilty. He deserves to burn. And God says, rebuke you, Satan. That's why Satan is in the picture. So Joshua will go, grace, mercy. That big long arm is grace and mercy in the echoes of the accusations from Satan. That's why Satan's in the picture. So Joshua will appreciate his rescue. So the questions we asked early. If Satan has influence in this world, if he has it, which I think we established that he does, how much influence does he have? Well, he has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. He's prince of the power of the air. He's worked the sons of obedience. He schemes of the devil. He's got powers, forces of darkness, spiritual forces of evil and wickedness. He prowls around like a roaring lion. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Ultimately, he's got a lot of influence. But he only does what God lets him do. He only does what God lets him do. How much influence he has depends on how much influence God gives him. Who's ultimately in control? God is in control. So, should we be scared of Satan? Eee, poltergeist. Ooh, omen. Scary. Meanwhile, God is presented as this goofy, forgetful goober in the movies. Bruce Almighty. I didn't see it. I like Morgan Freeman, but I don't think he's going to represent a holy, powerful, omnipotent, omniscient God very well. I didn't see it. I refuse to see these, these goofy movies where God is made goofy. When I was a kid, our version was, oh, God, George Burns. I called Scott last night, the movie. movie uh, he's got like a little catalog upstairs of all the movies that he knows. And I said, Scott, what's the other movie about God? It's about 10 or 15 years ago. And he's like, I don't know. And I looked online, and I found it was made in 1977. <laughs> 10 or 15 years ago. Oh, man, that's bad when you think 30 years ago was actually 10 or 15 years ago. Scott wasn't even born yet. He's like, I don't know what that is. George Burns? You mean George Burns is going to represent God? And yet, poltergeist and omen, or omen. I want to get that mixed up. Omen and Damien. Ooh. Man, that's wrong. My Bible says a real scary movie is going to present God in all His majesty, in all His sovereignty, in all His power. And it's going to show Satan to be the real goober. Satan should be recognized. He should be acknowledged. But he shouldn't be feared. He should fear the Lord. Beginning of knowledge, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. One thing I want to leave you with, just kind of a bird's eye view of what I would charge you with, is not to give Satan too much credit. Can I tell you how often I hear, and I'm sure I've said this, well, Satan really is giving them a tough time. Satan really sure is messing up that church. Boy, Satan's busy. Look, that cancer hasn't gotten cured yet. Whew, that's Satan. Boy, he's, he's, he's really messing things up. Don't blame the devil for the difficulties in your life. Don't. Give full blame to the devil for conflict in your family. Don't blame the devil for seeming difficulty in communicating with your husband or wife. Don't blame the devil for a difficult work environment. Don't blame the devil because your house won't sell and your cancer won't heal and your womb won't open. Don't blame the devil. He may be involved. In fact, he's likely involved. But give the ultimate responsibility to the sovereign, powerful, living God and look and try to understand how are you going to be glorified in this God because I know you're in control I know you're on your throne I know you're not missing this I know you're not caught unawares I know you're not distracted I know if this is happening to me it's got to be for your glory a cell doesn't multiply but by his permission a tree doesn't fall in the woods but by his taking that life a bud doesn't sprout but by his permission. 
A star doesn't fall without his consent. An ant doesn't bite but by his okay. A grasshopper doesn't smash against your windshield but by his authority. A dog doesn't die. A baby isn't born. A bird doesn't fly. A flower doesn't bloom. And a cow doesn't calve without his involvement and without his permission. Jeremiah writes about the power of God. He says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing is too difficult for you. His arm is strong and his arm is long. He is sovereign. He is in complete control. He is on his throne and he's never been off of it. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is the one true God. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We know that, we trust that. Even in heartache, even in trial, even in difficulty, even in loss, we know you're on your throne. We know that you are good. We know that you are able. And we trust you in ways where you do intervene and even in ways where you don't. We trust your plan. We trust your design. And we want to be instruments of glory wherever you have us. Lord, I pray as a result of this is that we have a bigger view of how awesome you are and how sovereign you are and how powerful you are. And that we have a better, more accurate view of little old Satan that has to ask permission for anything. Lord, we confess that not out of any fear of Satan, but out of fear for you, fear of you and trust in you, and out of enjoyment of the finished work of Christ that allows us to boldly approach you. Thank you so much, Lord, for being on your throne. In Christ's name we pray, and by his finished work, amen.